0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an
1: episode. Subscribe today.
0: The Big Interview. Intriguing lives, remarkable careers, and gripping stories. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty
2: and Robbie Greenfield. We're talking today to David McMillan, he's now 64 years of age, he grew up in Australia and he basically got involved in illegal and very illicit activities, he became a drug smuggler. He retired at the age of 23 having made an awful lot of money from those activities and became a wanted man by authorities across Asia. Wow! But he was incarcerated back in the 1980s. He served an initial jail sentence. He was released out on parole in 1993. He's now the author of quite a few books, including Unforgiving Destiny, his most recent book, and also MacVillan, The Man Who Got Away. Uh, So he is someone who... I think it's fair to say, has, you know, turned over a new leaf after leading a life very much on the wrong side of the tracks in his early 20s. But ironically, we're going to go to a time where he thought that all his troubles were behind him. He'd retired. He was no longer doing the things that, that were liable to get him in serious trouble with the authorities. And yet the authorities were still after him. So it was actually a fateful visit to Thailand where things began to unravel and we're going to zoom into this particular chapter in David's life. We're not going to deal with any of the other myriad chapters that we could spend hours talking about. And I did spend hours <laughs> talking about with him. He's, uh, he's a chameleon. He's a very much a Jekyll and Hyde character is David McMillan. Um, and he was traveling to Thailand under the name of Daniel Westlake. He actually had at one point up to 30 different identities on the go at oh once. Oh, my lord! Leonard is He really was. Yeah. So we pick up the story. He's arriving at Dom Wang Airport. Take a listen.
1: I arrived at the airport, and uh, there's a terrible moment in in travel generally, you could say, but in smuggling in particular, when you you hand over a passport, and the clerk behind the desk, she looked at it, looked at her desk as though seeing a matching name, which she, no doubt, did looked around and then said, "Um, I just have to check something. I'll be back in five minutes. I looked around. There were guys everywhere. I could start to see them. I'd been so confident, I didn't even really take a lot of the usual precautions. Because for um, 15 years before I arrived in Thailand, I'd been in maximum security prisons. I had the police following me. I'd been out of jail and following me again. I only felt free when I was, actually landed in Thailand with nobody knowing. Three days later, it all switches again. In seconds, I look around, and I have to go back immediately to the mode I was at the very height of operations in the old days. That fleeting three days of freedom evaporated to a nothing. So I I melted back into the crowd. And, oh, by the way, if you ever have to escape an, an airport, don't go out from arrivals. Run upstairs to departures and grab one, in, one of the taxis that arrive dropping people off. They'll get you in the car park if you don't.
2: Bit of a hot tip there. <laughs> have you ever have <laughs> to flee an airport from David Macmillan? A hot tip.
0: Don't go to arrival taxis. Go to departures.
2: <laughs> go up the floor. Go up the flight of stairs. And, which well, I've done numerous times. Leg it well, from the Well, you kind of have
0: to make it through immigration first yeah. to, in order to be able to do that. Let yeah, me think of that. Where the baggage claim is. That's where you can usually yeah, but go back and forth between oh, arrivals yeah, and yeah, departures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I'm thinking of... When I'm actually through all of yeah. that, I can either go to the arrival taxis yeah. or you do go up the stairs and you, you pick up, which I you technically believe. shouldn't do because I think there's fines handed out to the taxi
2: drivers up there. But I can't anyhow.
0: believe he slipped through a crowd at the airport when people were already focused on him and managed to a get out. A lot of
2: this story you will find difficult to believe. Trust me, that's the, that's the least of, of the disbelievable parts of it. So he was alert enough to get away from the airport. We have to move on because what did he do now in the knowledge that he was a hunted man?
1: Even though my head was on fire with rage um, and despair in the taxi going back to town, I made a second mistake. When you melt away, you're supposed to do exactly that. You go to your reserves and you've got some money, another ID. Don't go near anybody that who knows you or any of your previous things. But I wanted to at least call my mother... Uh, And I don't know what, say something stupid, apologize, you know, tell her I'll be okay. And the only place I could do that was from a travel agency. I did ring the guy up north out of some misguided sense of, uh, you know, warning and tell him that his phones must be tapped. I told, by the way, when I called, I told him to go to the shop next door. I had their telephone as well. He was in uh, Chiang Mai. He didn't think his phone was tapped. Uh, but on the good phone, he said, Well, what are you going to do now? I said, I'll make a couple of phone calls from our friends. He knew who I meant, uh, the travel agency guys, and uh, then I'll just disappear. He immediately went back to his own office, the tap phone that I'd warned him about, called the people at the travel agency to say, David's going to be down, but uh, he won't be there long. Yak, yak, yak. Now, they were doing, at that very moment, a live test with the USDA of tapped phones around Thailand, and he was a good enough target, uh, old Tommy, flinging my name around on a DEA test of their equipment. I go to a travel agency, having got away from them after taking three tuk-tuks and a motorbike and God knows what else, walk into the travel agency, go down to the back to pick up the phone, And I've got a picture in my mind of 14 cigarette butts on the curb opposite the travel agency door. What? Well, it could have been anything, but I saw them then. They marched straight in. I was despairing and breathless is not the word, because again, my reserve life, the second one that I'd created, just should such a thing happen, just went up in flames as well because in my bag was fifty thousand us dollars in the new zealand passport dead all of that and i know about thailand i knew what was going to happen it wasn't going to be good so to be clear there the authorities have stormed the travel agency
2: well uh, as bad luck would have it for david he's warned the guy um that he's going to make some calls the guy's got on the phone his name has been mentioned and it just so happens that that was a wiretapped phone oh. So they were already waiting for him when he arrived. And that's what the cigarette butts were, It were the guys, uh, the authorities, the policemen who'd come to Sticky apprehend out. him who'd just been having a few cigarettes before he arrived and he twigged too late that that was what's was going to happen. So he was taken to Bangkok's infamous Klon Prem prison where he would await what he described as trumped up charges brought against him. Now, listen to this. This is David's description vivid of the Klomprem prison.
1: What do people imagine? I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's never seen it. I suppose they imagine lots of walls, dark, murky brick, people rattling around in chains and uh, bad food. But it's worse. (laughs) Go over a moat past huge walls, much taller than any European or or UK prison I've ever seen. And then it's massive, the Klong Prem complex. It used to be called the Bangkok Hilton many years ago, in a feeble bit of irony. Um, There are 12 sub-prisons within it, including a place which has a long Thai name, but loosely um, it's for people who are on drug cases. And actually called something like the... um, the Center for Rehabilitation of Drug Offenders. But everybody knows it uh, by the Thai name uh, of a word meaning the cure. And I suppose in a sense it was. You have to wear chains all the time. Now, these chains are pressed on with steel C-rings around your ankle, and they probably weigh about uh, 12, 15 kilos. And you have to sleep in them. You have to shower in them. Uh, old hands will tell you uh, there's a bit of a clever origami trick to get your underwear off through the loops in the in the ankles. Um, and it's, it's better to buy shorts that are very thin material. There's nowhere to sleep. Uh, the dormitories, which nominally were built for 64, have at least uh, 150 in them. On your first nights, if you're not organized, um, you end up sleeping on some cardboard in the, the corridor, of the uh, of the big dormitory, in other words, living hell.
2: Living hell, exactly that. He actually made the joke that in the rice that they served, he said at least the weevils were a decent source of protein. Um, he said it was oh. awful, beyond the description. It was awful. So, what about the cell which David would launch this unlikeliest of prison escapes after a year behind bars in the Clonprem prison? He spent 12 months there. He'd managed to secure an internal transfer.
1: No, I- was told of the Great Foreigners Building. I'm imagining some oasis of luxury in this fetid stench pit. Uh, Was it? No. It was the dregs of the Western world that the wind had blown into a squalid corner. That's all. I was saved by an absolute con man. This guy, Dean Reed, he had that kind of Boston drawl. David, he said, uh, you don't belong here. I I look at you, and you shouldn't be in here. Now, he spoke Thai like a native, and he said an odd thing to me. He said, David, you'll never defeat this place unless you love these people. I paid a bit of money here and there, and I ended up in um, the convicted prisoners section, which is somewhat better, because people are a bit more settled, there's less movement. I renovated a cell, so the building chief remarked upon uh, how many renovations were certainly desperately needed around his own office, slid over the envelope. Um, They were very organized. They had a little uh, shop there that sold uh, coffee and rice and whatnot.
2: So that was where he ended up after 12 months. And it was a a comparative luxury, you could say. It's a little bit like in Shawshank Redemption, when Andy Dufresne earns a status within the prison that allows him to actually manipulate that to his his own good and his own merit. In the building that, that David was now housed in, he actually noticed that the bars were thinner than any of the others. He told me that he formulated about 20 different escape plans, but they all came to nothing because somebody else was involved in them. And he'd observed that those who had tried to escape were accosted and kept in the most brutal of solitary confinement. They were also beaten within an inch of their lives. So if you were gonna try and escape, you needed to make sure it was a successful one. Attempted escapes were rare, successful ones were unheard of.
1: I realized I was on my own and had been making sort of plans and building a lot of equipment. Um, But I was told that my court case would end in two weeks and I'd be sentenced to death. That focused my mind. And I I put my plan into effect. I told nobody. And like anything, (laughs) like um, an illicit affair uh, from a marriage, the secret is tell no one, (laughs) not even your best friend. In fact, it took so long on the night. I mean, I had the only light in the whole building that you could actually switch off at night. So it was dark. That had cost quite a bit. Interfered with my sleep, I told the head guard. Oh, got to buy the light. Oh, by the way, here's my visa card. I'll need another 10,000 this week. Oh, take 15% this way. You've been a good guy after all. Now, what about that light switch?
2: And this is how he he acquired the only light in the prison that you could turn off. Because, of course, he was bribing. He was about to cut his way out of the prison cell. And if he'd done it with a light on, it would have been a short lived attempt. (laughs) But through a series of bribes, he'd actually secured four tungsten hacksaw blades, which had been taken from one of the prison workshops. And so began this audacious plan. Part one was to get out of the cell that he was locked up in.
1: I had to make sure the right guard was on duty that night, the one who was a good sound sleeper in his little guard post. And so I didn't really hear anything out of him. But yeah, all the furniture in that cell um, had little dowel rods and pins and came apart because the, the, the window is right up the top. Um, so you can't get to it to do your soaring unless you've got a kind of elaborate thing. So this unf- the, the table that I had put in there unfolded and, and made a kind of step to go up to the bars. I uh, took the mosquito screens off. Uh, took, I'd previously taken the, um, uh, the blades uh, out of their stash. And then um, I started cutting to get the right place. I had to cut at least one bar uh, or four cuts uh, to squeeze through. Then I went back for the final cut, <laughs> cut one bar clean off the bottom. They were round, by the way. And it sprung away. So old were they. It was built second World War, And it had shifted the entire building. So when I released the tension on that bar, it sprang away. I, I realized this was going to be no simple matter. Started cutting the upper part of the same bar, and only got halfway through it at three fifteen. So
2: it's three fifteen in the
0: morning. Yeah, he is hacking away yeah. at his prison cell door now, in Claim Prom Bangkok. Well,
2: the prison cell window, not the door, not the, the door window. into the corridor, the window going out. He's actually on the third floor of a building block, and basically his cellmates are getting the jitters big time because they know that if someone comes along and sees what's going on. They're all going to be in for it. So David actually said one of his cellmates was about to raise the alarm. Otherwise, it was getting so late by this point that he was tempted to try and postpone the operation by a day. But at long last, he cut a gap big enough to squeeze through. And I asked David what floor he was on as he made his escape through the window.
1: Three floors up. Underneath me was a crumbling brick awning. uh, And beneath the window outside that was full of trustees who sat up all night gambling. Um, if I made any sound on that, if I put a foot on it, if a bit of something else fell on it, they'd get curious and look out the window. And if I was seen by any of the ties, they would have taken the whistle from around their neck and literally blown it <laughs> with a full-throated bellow, I would assume. Um, now, a bookcase that I had put in was a kind of scaffolding plank. It wasn't there to be a bookcase. It slid out the window sidewards, And a footstool was uh, turned around to become a a kind of keyhole lock that wedged that um, sideways-turned bookcase uh, plank, if you can imagine, poking out into the night sky. So I stripped down to uh, bed, just to put the clothes and the other things I'd need into a a shoulder bag, inched out along uh, this plank stuck into the air, hooked my um, 100 metres of uh, rope folded in the middle at 50 metres there and just was able to drop it over this crumbling awning thing. And then I had this sort of crazy ebb sailing down notion, but that didn't work. It didn't work. I started swinging wildly in a sort of cascading figure of eight. Let's look in profile at the building. It's the the wall of the building. This bookcase stuck out six feet into the sky. It's three floors up. I've got this loop of rope over the tip of that. And I've had to go hand over hand to get to it and then one-handed to do the looping and it kind of dropped to the ground as it should. But very close to where the masonry awning stuck out midway between each floor. So that when I tried to abseil, all it did was push me closer to the the wall of the um, building. So I had to forget about that, stabilise, um, my grip, and then just slide to the bottom of the ground. Um, strangest feeling, you know, when when I squeezed through that window after oiling up a bit, and was clinging onto the bars in that in that night, and the whole sound was different, the smell was different. I looked into the cell and saw the the guys in there, and the Swedish guy and Hawaiian mirage carrying in a corner, and little jet pacing up and down it was all alien to me no longer part of my world even though I was very much out
0: of it and he does paint a very vivid picture he at does. times there it's difficult to really picture yeah. the scene but yeah. you can picture this bootcase six feet out the window he's looped on the
2: rope and there he is swinging yeah. in a figure of eight. and he's trying to abseil but he's realized that if he abseils he's going to put too much pressure on the wall he's going to alert someone so ultimately he has to slide Shimmy down he has to slide down the rope. he was obviously a very sinewy fit guy to no. do that
0: was that apparatus? Was the rope? Are the guys in his cell looking at this as thinking, as soon as he shimmies down, I'm getting on this? I'm no, getting-
2: no, 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 no. They, they didn't. They, they, they had no. He had had a, a very complex plan, which involved what he needed to do when he once he got outside. Aha. They did not, and they just weren't going to chance it. The risks were too great. So it was a one-man operation, is what it was. Um, he was actually in building number six. It was in a complex comprising fourteen buildings each holding around a 1,000 inmates. Massive, massive prison. This was now uh, 20 to 4 in the morning, and he had seven sub-prisons to climb through before he got anywhere. How did he do that, you might legitimately ask? Well, during his time inside, David had been acquiring all sorts of what you might call contraband, wooden picture frames under the auspices of a hobby that he had, gaffer tape as well, and he had these stored in the nearby factory, and now was the time to put them to use.
1: Um, I had to make a letter... The ladder had to come from another factory. It was bamboo poles, which uh, uh, would be taped together with gaffer tape. When I broke my way into the factory that had the long bamboo poles used for drying things, I put those poles side by side down on the ground and the picture frames in between so that the shorter part of the picture frame formed rungs of a ladder. With a torch held in my mouth in the darkness, I taped them all up with uh, the gaffer tape. Two sets of these long ladders, because I knew one wouldn't possibly be tall enough. I found I couldn't go back the way I came out of that factory, because it was too noisy near a sleeping guard, I Had to climb back into the auto repair shop, drag these two ladders through into the auto repair shop, and then lug them round to the back of uh, building number six. I I found the best technique was um, by putting these two long ladders together, hauling them over to one of the walls, regardless of the barbed wire, forcing them into the middle position, climbing up one side, and using my weight, climbing down the other side to lift up the side I just climbed up. So it was like a a seesaw, a teeter-totter action. Uh, Put it in place the top of the inner walls which weren't so high uh, climb up to that then it dropped down drag it off but it was still incredibly exhausting I, I can imagine
0: <laughs> immediately the WWE came to mind those ladders that <laughs> the ladder match the ladder match at yeah. WWE the ladders so would open, up. They open up so mm-hmm. he attached two ladders together so right. what he would do is he'd climb up one of them yep. to get to the top and he'd climb down the bottom and he'd use his weight to flip over the, the other th- side ladder. of it to then go and then Surmount another one. This is a quite incredible tale. This is a man breaking
2: out. And he said, for anyone who doesn't believe him, check the police reports because he says he's had a lot of naysayers in his time who've said, Ooh. what you're doing, what you're saying is, is absolutely nonsense. None of this ever happened. You're a, you're a fantasist. Ooh. But. He said, it's all in the police reports, it's all official, it's all written down. Finally, he made it to the outer wall of the prison, which was about 10 meters high, and it was posing other challenges.
1: There, I knew the wall had an inner moat of about um, 10 feet, which is a sewer, really. And it's got its own little bit of barbed wire going on in there, against which various plastic bags, and it used to be called Mars Bar Creek, <clears throat> uh, not without some good reason. And on top of that, it had a um, another run of five, four or five feet of barbed wire, which was electrified. And beyond that wall was a very thin footpath, but beyond that, to get away to anywhere, was the surrounding prison moat of 25 long meters of um, the greater Klong Pe- Prem. A uh, little creek had been diverted around, so surrounded the entire prison and even assuming you swam that and the original plan was to swim that um, with my clothes in a plastic bag dry myself off the other side get dressed again and go into the buildings but I knew the buildings were full of guards they, their houses were all there uh, I knew that much but this was before Google Earth so my, my friends' descriptions of everything were all wrong and where they pasted, you know, pasted out well, it was all wrong as well I can't prop my ladder against the wall. Why? Because uh, Mars Bar Creek is between me and the wall. I can't go into Mars Bar Creek, even if I find a way across it. On the other side is only about 18 inches, about what, 40 centimeters of dry earth to prop my ladder. It's hugely heavy, this ladder. I can't do it. I can't prop it against the thing. I can't go across the creek. If I do go across the creek by putting the ladder across the creek, how can I haul the ladder back over the other side uh, and then find a way to prop it up, which is <clears throat> the ladder would weigh more than I did at that point. So I um, put the ladder across the, the moat uh, at an angle, um, went across it against the wall side. I can't drag it over, but can I? I broke off a piece of it, about a solid long finger of it, taped it and tied it into the the bit of the ladder that was up against the wall, just poking over there, so it couldn't move, but it could pivot. So I went back across the moat, tied the other end of the rope to that, back across the wall side again, went down um, the long way, knowing that one end of that ladder is anchored on a pivot, and I use my stick to lever it up uh, above the moat, um, you know, four or five feet, so that it could swing. So
0: he's he's had to do a bit of DIY. He's done a bit of DIY. Whilst mid-breakout yeah. in all of
2: this. Yeah, he's had just, to get creative. Yeah, it's incredible. I I have to admit, I'm not a DIY man, and I don't really understand what he's done there, but he's created a lever, a pivot, whereby the ladder can almost act like a... Like a door. swinging door. Yeah, yeah exactly, which bring, allows him to bring it back onto the side, the other side of the moat, which then allows him to put it up against the, the wall and get to the top of the wall. So it's now 5.30 in the morning, and David's actually running out of time to, to pull this off because guards on the morning shift will soon be at work. But at least the, now, the ladder was on the right side of the moat, and David was able to force it into an upright position. Now, he was between two guard towers, but <laughs> as luck would have it, both were unmanned. <laughs> oh, no. He scaled the top of the wall and then was able to consider how best to make his final push for freedom.
1: I could see the glow of dawn coming through uh, and realised I wouldn't possibly have time to be negotiating the greater moat, swimming across things, cleaning myself up. and I wouldn't know where I was any place. The only place I really recognised from down there was where the front gate was. And I knew in the morning well, they set up the stalls there and they bake the bread for the visit shop for the prisoners and the, the guards come in. So I slid down on my last... Oh, I had to get over the electric fence, which, interesting thing, it, uh, when you're sweating so much, uh, it tingles through just by a kind of induction. Apparently a couple of ties had got that far once before, many years ago felt that tingle, and then fell into a monk's uh, monastery on the other side, uh, one breaking something or other. Um, but it, it was probably not knowing that it was electrified, I guess. Uh, I knew it was only, only 240 current. I, I couldn't touch it, but um, I had a little uh, rubber sheet, and that allowed me to kind of position myself between the wires. Slid to the bottom, didn't worry about the ladder against the wall or the bit of rope now hanging over it. With my last bit of water, took a drink of it and then cleaned myself up a bit, took my long pants out and um, street clothes, clean pair of trainers, whatever, shirt. I've still got to get outside the prison. Uh, I'm on the outside of the prison walls, but I have to walk past uh, the guards looking down And then go across the little moat bridge, which has the shops in it. And where all the arriving guards come and the the office workers. And I'm pretty well known after paying off everybody for a couple of years. But my official job there was working in the umbrella factory. And they made these little pop-up umbrellas. So I had one of them with me because I thought, as I said, I didn't want a white face being spotted. Um, And there was enough light rain, just a drizzly sort of tropical bit, to justify an umbrella, which was a bit of goodwill from the heavens, one really got. And I put that umbrella up and, and walked to the front, just looking, creeping a little pointless, pointless, look out there to see if any guard was watching and one was you know he probably thought at that time escaping prisoners do not have the refinement of taking an umbrella on account of rain <laughs>
2: so david <laughs> walked cool as you like out of the front door of the clon prison the first westerner to have ever successfully escaped and he remains that. Um, he'd gone to extraordinary lengths not to be spotted. He actually told me he put a pebble inside his shoe so as to change his gait. He said so that any gaitologist <laughs> among the guards who would have recognized his own walk wow. w- w- weren't going to spot him. So he left no-, no stone unturned, pardon the pun. What were his emotions as he realized he was clear?
1: I climbed the uh, pedestrian bridge over the eight lane highway that goes to and from the airport once I was clear of the prison and I felt safe enough to take down my umbrella and looked back upon the complex and felt so distant from them. I mean, I had my friends still in there. All that time was just nothing, and it evaporated into nothing. I wasn't going to waste any time thinking of it.
2: If you are interested in hearing more from him, he's got a YouTube channel. Uh, He's a free man back in the UK. All court cases against him have been dropped. And he's also the author of the book Unforgiving Destiny. He published as well The Edge back in 2014 and *McVillan: The Man Who Got Away. Thank
0: you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate and give us a review. This podcast was presented by Chris McCarty, Sonal Rupani and Robbie Greenfield and produced by Tom Paul Smith. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.